The color casinas. There are four basic colors mentioned in the commentaries and in the suttas. The descriptions of these are quite brief, and how to develop them and use them are quite brief. But they're always in the context, the larger context of Buddhism and the Eightfold Path. So don't, uh, don't expect that they can simply be removed and treated as individual meditation objects quite apart from a context. So this is something that the commentaries mention, that there are individuals who will not benefit from doing these because they haven't established themselves in virtue or in right view or they have various types of deficiencies. So there are, it's not for everybody, there are excluded categories. One thing, of course, uh, if you're colorblind or blind and you can't visualize colors, so some blind people were sighted and then they lose their, their sight, but they can still visualize colors. They could actually do this. There are other people who are colorblind. And uh, just incidentally, you may have seen some videos of people who were colorblind their whole life. And uh, there are types of glasses now that allow you to see colors if you're colorblind. And watch what happens emotionally to these people when they put those glasses on and see color for the first time. Every time they, they burst into tears. It's such an extraordinary experience. So don't, over, don't take for granted the effect of colors and the capacity to see colors. It's not something to be taken lightly. There are profound emotional implications of colors in your life. And one of the descriptions that poets and writers often give of the, of the world if you're in a depressed state is that it loses its color, becomes dark gray. Some of you, of course, are old enough to remember what black and white television was and also black and white movies. It has its effect, but it is a strange world that you enter when you enter a black and white movie or television. So colors are intrinsically emotional elements, some sort of correspondence in the mind. And this would be important as well to how we find proper places to live in nature. It would be to do with the color of the sky, the color of the soil, the color of the water, color of the basic elements around us. So we spent a few talks on the elements of earth, water, air, and fire. And one of the things, if you're doing casina meditations on those elements, is to ignore the colors in those elements. You ignore the color in water or in earth or in air. There is no of course, element of sight in air. And it's uh, experienced by contact, but you can see it in swaying trees and in, they, they talk in the commentaries about swaying sugarcane fields. You should be so lucky to live in a country that has sugarcane fields swaying. So 
It has a visual element, but if you are doing air element meditation, then you would ignore the color aspect of it. So now we come to this color essence, and you need to reflect on this, the importance of colors in your life. Now, you, uh, you choose colors to, for your environment, your interior design, where you live. You decide to paint the walls a certain color. You decide that certain art is hung on the walls. And that art, of course, is not necessarily chosen just for the colors. It's chosen for expression of meaning. But these colors in artifacts of our daily life and our clothing all are very important to uh, the human world. So we are going to use those. We're going to extract the essence of those colors and what it does to the mind. And we're going to turn them into mind-made objects. Now, this is one of the easier casinas to make as well. So especially in modern times. In the 5th century BC, when they were making these casinas, they talk about you know, getting the, the colors, the primary colors of blue or red or yellow or white, and making a disc, maybe nine inches or so in diameter, and outlining around it a contrary or neutral color, say black, just so that the color stands out. And one thing is that in early times, it was not easy to get a vivid, perfect color. We're in a time when you can get this at any hardware store, you can get paint that is absolutely astonishingly pure in blue or red or yellow. You can get it shiny or dull or any texture you want. So they would say that the texture is something to be removed. So it should have absolute smoothness to it. Uh, it should not have flaws or imperfections or anything like this. You can, in modern times, of course, they have plastic and fabrics and various materials that are absolutely flawless and perfect representations of the primary colors. And this is the advantage of our time. So go and find it. Go to your hobby shop or whatever it is. Find acrylic discs. Whatever it takes, find it and make it. If it requires painting, then do it perfectly evenly with the fewest imperfections that you can do. There are certain modern abstract arts that do this, where you have a, a canvas with a background and then a single red dot in the middle of it interesting that some artists find this intriguing, this essence, single essence color. So this is something you can uh, develop on your own, and you will have an affinity perhaps to certain colors. Blue may be more conducive to your moods, or red, or yellow, or white. This is something to explore. You can make four casinas, of course. It's not a great problem to make these things. And to experiment with them. Each color has, I think as we know in just modern psychology and in modern design and art and so forth, they, each color 
is different in its effect on us. And at certain times, blue, and in certain situations, blue is very important. Other times, red, uh, yellow. I noticed that in uh, Scandinavian countries, they seem to use very vivid primary colors, and that may be because of long, dark winters. Where I am in Canada, we also have long, dark winters, but we're not quite that far north. That's another 10 degrees farther north than we are. And I can quite see why you would want primary colors. They're cheerful. So notice these effects. Notice also, if you look at fancy magazines that show food, there will usually be a red filter on the camera because food looks more appetizing under a red filter if it's got a red hueish, uh, red hue to it. If you put a blue filter on it, it tends to look rotten or old. <laughs> blue cheese looks suspicious. So you will see, in fact, heat lamps over in cafeterias are infrared, and they, they actually highlight the food in an appealing way. So humans have intrinsic uh, reactions to these certain types of colors. Humans as well look more appetizing when they have red lights on them than when they have blue lights on them. Bluish tinge to the skin is characteristic of corpses or grave illness. Reddish tinge is characteristic of health or passion. You notice this famous red light district. So in the red light district, the lights are red because why? Because humans look better under red lights. If you want to, in fact, if, if the red light district is a problem for the municipal government, just change the lights to blue and everybody will appear to be diseased. <laughs> and you will cure the problem purely by light. These are the implications of light. And you will see in the far north again when you look at movies of the far north, you'll see this incredibly beautiful blue snow. So snow itself can have this blue tinge to it. There's something quite gorgeous about blue, blue water, blue snow, the blue evening light. So reflect on this. Go over in your mind the nature of colors and its effect on you. So in the commentaries, they talk about people and their affinity for these colors. And they say such and such a monk or such and such a layperson entered jhana on the experience of, of a red rose or a red, a red lotus flower. There are lotus flowers that are blue, red, white, yellow in India at the time. And then there are certain uh, elements that can be spotted in the ocean that are you know, blue, etc. And they, they say this person entered jhana, entered samadhi with that. And they, they give the, the reasoning behind it is that this person had a long history with this in previous lives. So you, in fact, may have all kinds of proclivities now, we, in a sort of ordinary Western culture, we call this talent. A person has strange affinities and capacities and reactions to things far exceeding the normal reaction to this. 
So you see even children with fantastic musical capacities, art capacities, athletic capacities, mathematical capacities. Uh, these are considered to be the residue of previous life's development. So you can explore in some ways that you might have hidden capacities in terms of these relationship to these colors yourself. If so, you will probably have the very strong reactions to these, the natural colors in life, the blue sky, the blue ocean, red flowers. Some birds, of course, in the tropics have exquisite and extraordinary iridescent colorings, brilliant yellows, reds, blues, whites. White swans are riveting. The red, the iridescent red on a hummingbird and so forth. So these things, if they move you and capture your attention, then you should uh, mm, reflect on that. So it can be found in nature and you can cultivate it in nature. And then also to make yourself this refined casina. So it should be a disc of limited size. And you would then have a comfortable place that you sit because you're going to stare at this for a considerable length of time. Then you're going to close your eyes. And by the way, again, what will happen when you close your eyes, if you've been staring at a blue disc for a period of time, when you close your eyes, the opposite color will appear in your eye process. That is not what we mean by the, the counter image or the nimitta. We, you can wait till that fades. So you're staring at something red and then you close your eyes and it's blue. You'd stare at something blue and it can turn out to be the opposite color. So that is not to be preoccupied with, but you are to stare at that until you can visualize it. You can visualize it without looking at it and with your eyes closed, you can bring it into existence. Some people will fail at this. If you're not of good visual imagination, you will not be able to do this. Some people are extraordinarily and very easy for them to visualize things and bring it vividly to mind. Those who can't do that doubt that it can be done. It seems like it's not possible. And there's, there's an interesting effect that happens. And uh, this, is, this was understood or begun to be appreciated in psychology that there are certain people who have no visual imagination. And there's certain specific psychological terms for this. And it can also happen to a person who starts out with visual imagination as a child and then spends a lot of time in abstract thinking, theoretical thinking, uh, any of the, like, the higher academic processes of science, of history, of literature, and so forth, can keep you so focused on abstract thinking, where there's no imagery involved, that you lose the capacity to produce mind-made images. And some people never have this. And quite often, those people actually have, are very good at abstract thinking, language, and so forth, but they don't have the visualization process. This is noticed by uh, the psychologist William James in, the, uh, in his books, The Principles of Psychology. 
So you, you may discover something about yourself. You may not realize that you have no visual imagination that other people do. And and person could be wandering around in life never having realized that other people can visualize things in their minds, in their mind's eye, and that some people, it's simply absent. So this is a capacity that you may have or you may not have. And if, if you have it, then you, the color casinas are something appropriate for you. So what you do is you develop this in this very precise form. And the sign of success is that when you can visualize this, this object, strongly and the mind is truly focused on it, it suddenly becomes super normally perfect. This is the nimitta. This is a countersign which emerges out of this focused attention. And why is this happening? It's not happening because of, because of the color or your focus. It's that the mind finally comes into unified focus. Uh, this factor is called ekagata or unification of mind or wholehearted and complete attention. When you pay wholehearted and complete attention to something, the mind takes it up as an extraordinary, vivid image. By the way, this can happen in two different directions, one negative and one positive. This happens when people are traumatized by situations. So if they're bitten by a dog or they've been in a, in a fire or in a car accident or in war, the mind takes up the threatening image at such intensity that it, it appears in your mind vividly as if it was real. And in those cases, it's rather unfortunate. The mind's process where you get the counterimage, the nimitta, it's a scary after effect, which is so real that it puts you almost back into the real situation. So this is, this is the problematic side of the mind's capacity. But there's also a positive side. I don't know what we'd call it. So we call the negative side post-traumatic stress disorder and the positive side uh, post-bliss enjoyment order. <laughs> we'll have to make up a new one, which is the opposite of PTSD. And so this is something to explore. Now, notice in history that PTSD was, was not, not brought into the, to the language, to the lexicon, until sometime in maybe in the 60s. This was called, you know, soldiers had um, shell shock. It was not understood that you could have negative effects from traumatic experiences for the rest of your life. People couldn't understand what, what was the problem. The war was over or that event happened yesterday and now why are you still being affected by it? So this is something that has been overlooked in psychology and the opposite has been overlooked as well. That truly beautiful experiences can be brought to mind and are extremely exquisitely healthy and profitable. So of course, this is an occasion of encountering very uh, 
loving, kindly people, for instance, can leave you with a lifetime of positive recollections, which can uh, abide within your mind and, and, and alter your emotional experiences. Now, these color casinos are called the beautiful. They're referred to as the beautiful, and there are ways of attaining to samadhi with the beautiful. So the sign of the beautiful appears as uh, unmatched, like a 10 times more perfect and beautiful than the best acrylic blue casino that you could possibly make. The reason is that the, the mind is, is absolutely focused and interested, and then this beautiful sign emerges from that. And that's transfixing, and then you're, you're dwelling in samadhi with that beautiful sign. The sign of the beautiful is uh, the case for success with this. The next thing, if you manage to get this, is to play with the size of the casino. So you can increase it in uh, size, expand it out until it becomes sort of infinite. You just see blue to the edge of your cognition. Or you can reduce it. Now, in order to increase your concentration, the smaller the object, the higher the demand on your attention. The larger the object, the less demand on your attention. So when you're beginning this, it is good to just have it as a field of color in front of you, in your imagination, more or less like the sky where you can't see the, the edges of the sky. You're just staring into a blue field. And then you can increase the capacity for sustained and focused attention by shrinking the size of this casino within your mind, of course. This is, this is now a mind-made casino. This is the, the counter-image, the nimitta of the casino. So you can shrink it down until it's a, a very small point. And so this is something that you can, uh, you can exercise your samadhi with this if you succeed. Blue is, uh, it's one of the things I came across when I was investigating these, these colors. One of the things that is observed somewhere along the line in, um, in uh, history is that a lot of ancient cultures didn't seem to have a specific color for blue. They didn't have a word that was just for blue. Very strange. So this is observed in the in the Greek Odyssey and so forth. That when Homer refers to the the ocean as the wine dark ocean, and every time he talks about the ocean, it's the wine dark ocean. The ocean isn't wine dark; <laughs> it's blue. <laughs> Sail the ocean blue. This they had. It seems to be that they apply the word dark to black, to blue, and to variations on that. A strange observation. And this is also in the, in the Pali as well. This, the word for blue is not very specific. It also applies to black. And so we don't know exactly what they meant. 
I don't know why this is, but different cultures are lacking words for certain colors. And of course, even in our own culture, lots of people don't have a large vocabulary for colors. If you're a, an interior designer or something like that, we have to invent them because there are the number of shades of colors, there are tens of thousands of shades of colors. But also in modern, modern times, we have much more knowledge about the nature of, of light. And so we understand that the primary colors are blue and yellow and red. And it's by mixing them that you get all these other shades of colors. And so green is, is this mixture of blue and yellow. In the Pali, the original Pali, it applies to blue or what the, the, the color that they're referring to as blue is also the same word for green. Blue, green, black are all mushed together under a single term. But I would suggest that this business of the pure blue is probably meaningful to the mind in a certain way. Obviously, when we stare at the sky, that we see blue. We may not have a lot of words for it, but that's what it is. It takes a while as a child. Do you, do you remember learning colors? And your mother would point at something and say, now what color is that? And you, would you have to learn the name of these, these colors. You can see it, but what's its name? Yeah. So, and of course, some people are very acute in this. They have very good memory. So can you get a, if you're sent to the store to get this color blue, do you need to go with a color swatch to the store? Or can you recall, when you get to the store, can you recall the shade of blue? Some people can. They can uncannily get within very tiny amount by recollection of this color. They have sort of absolute color memory. Others, as soon as you take your eyes off the color, it's only approximate that you can um, approximate the shade of the color. You know, So you'll see your, your own sensitivities and your own capacities for this. But I would say stay, in the modern times, we have many advantages in terms of these color casinos, so to, to use those. So these are called the beautiful. Let me tell you a little story about a monk. And because some people who are meditators are somewhat suspicious of this word beautiful, you've been told probably, if you go to a lots of meditation retreats, that the problem is that you are, you are a sensualist. You get your pleasures out of the sense experience of the world. And that's a problem because the sensory experience of the world, such as these flowers back here, notice the flowers. What colors are those flowers? There's blue, red, yellow, and white. Now, Flowers are very beautiful, and most people like flowers, and they appreciate the beauty of the flower and so forth. In uh, Buddhist uh, circles, we have something that we put on the altar of a Buddha image and so forth, traditionally, and one of them is flowers. But what is the flower the symbol for? Ultimately, is the symbol for impermanence, because they're exquisitely beautiful, they smell good, usually, but they don't last long. Cut flowers fade. 
within a day or two, they start to fade. The beauty, and that, that's a disappointment. We, we, it's no longer beautiful to us. We, we are somewhat saddened by this because it was so beautiful, now it's gone. And that's the, the kind of the understanding. So when we're using uh, these color casinas for beauty to absorb into, some people are suspicious about this, the beautiful nature of this. Isn't, isn't this beautiful nature impermanent, not to be attached to? Yes, ultimately indeed. But it's a means to an end. So the story goes, this monk, this fellow ordained and became a monk. And he was a disciple, I think, of uh, Sariputta, uh, the, one of the two chief disciples of the Buddha, foremost in wisdom. And so he had students. He was an arahant, fully enlightened, and foremost in wisdom. So this monk got assigned a... He, he was a... Sariputta um, diagnosed him as a, a sensory person, sensualist. And so he gave him usually the prescribed thing for a person who's deeply in, into sensory experience. The beautiful experience is to prescribe for a monk the unbeautiful, more or less a meditation on a corpse, a decaying corpse, digestion, or the 32 parts of the body, sort of detach them from their, their clinging to uh, beautiful sensory things. So this monk was, th th those are um, not so appealing. Nobody, nobody really likes to think about corpses or digestion or, or the body all cut up into pieces. It's not fun. It can help you detach from the beautiful, our obsession with the body, etc. but it's hard to get motivated with this. So he was struggling in his life. He was having trouble spending the day because if you don't have good samadhi, you're going to have trouble spending the day. There is nothing else to do for a monk than to sit under a tree and meditate. So eventually this monk came to the Buddha and said, you know, I'm very restless and not very interested. It's just hard to get through the day. And the Buddha, he understood that this monk had been a goldsmith in this life. He'd come from a family of goldsmiths. And so, and he also saw into his past, into his past lives, that this isn't the first time he's been a goldsmith. Many lives as a goldsmith, because one of the things, he loves the color of gold. He loves the beautiful sheen and shine and feel of the gold. So he is a sensualist. So the Buddha, instead of giving him the unbeautiful as a topic, he gave him a bundle of flowers that had been given to him, yellow lotuses, very beautiful, yellow lotus. He says, take these, go find a nice seat by, by the lake down there, and just stare at those and see what happens. So he took them, stared at them, and went into jhana. So jhana is this deep state of absorption, which is very, very pleasurable. And there's no problem passing the time as a monk. If you can have, if you have samadhi, then you don't need any other exterior distractions. And so the monk came back to the Buddha and he said, oh, thank you very much. That was, I now know how to live as a monk. 
and he had discovered this samadhi on the beautiful. Now, the, now this is interesting because Sariputta had, had prescribed the unbeautiful or the repulsive. And this would be the standard prescription for the sensualist personality. But the Buddha had said, you know, it doesn't apply all the time. This person first needs to be understand what absorption is, what full immersion in concentration is. So that's why he prescribed that. So that monk went back and went into samadhi with these beautiful flowers. And while he was in samadhi, some children saw him and they, they were picking flowers out of the marsh as well, various beautiful lotuses, and they brought them over and set them in front of him because uh, this is the, the way you pay respect to uh, religious figures. And so they had been taught that. So he brought these beautiful flowers. He opened his eyes, and there in front of him was a beautiful bundle of flowers. He was very pleased and went back into absorption for the whole afternoon. Eventually, at the end of the afternoon, he opened his eyes again after hours of deep samadhi, very blissful samadhi. And those flowers, which had been laid out on a wooden plank, were now dead and shriveled. And he suddenly had a startling effect. These gorgeous, beautiful flowers were now not gorgeous, not beautiful. The sign of impermanence had appeared. And at that point, he became enlightened. So this is, this is a strategy. So you can actually go through the beautiful and the acquiring this absorption. And the mind is in a perfect condition then for realization of this fundamental characteristic of the universe, that all things in the universe are impermanent, and including the beautiful. And that if you don't recognize this sign, you will be again and again disappointed and suffer. So this is a, a little story related to this cultivation of this samadhi on the beautiful and on these casinas and how it can prepare the mind to gain deep clarity and insight into the three characteristics, which are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness or insubstantiality of things. So this is how you can ultimately use this beyond this just mere practice of casinas. So this is why I say the casinas, both the, the four elements and the four colors, are also only appropriate really within the context of the Eightfold Path. And for more information about the Eightfold Path and the Buddhist view of things, see other talks by me, extended numbers of talks so that you have a, a context for all of this information to be put into. So this is a summary of the, the four color casinas for today. <laughs>